Uh, but we are continuing today in our Members Speak summer series. Uh, and what we're going to do today is actually a little bit different than what Mike did and a little bit different than what you're going to hear the rest of the series. We're going to kind of hear more uh, stories of, of people's life. You know, what I kind of felt was on my heart to do today is really just to walk through the, the theme verse and the theme, pa- theme passage that we're working out of this summer in Isaiah chapter 6. So we're just going to camp in Isaiah chapter 6, the first eight verses today. Um, and we're going to kind of see this, this story, this encounter that Isaiah has with God. And I think what we're hopefully going to learn is how that story can be our story as well. But before we do that, really before we do anything else, I, I know we just prayed, but I'd love if you would just go to God in prayer with me one more time prior to this, this message. So let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. God, when we only walk this earth because of your grace and power, every day is a gift, and I thank you for giving us another one. God, we thank you for being who, we, who you are. God, for making us who we are. God, we thank you for the words that we sang and, and read today, and God, how true they are, that you are the name that is above all the other names, that you are seated on your throne and God, we, we bow before you in this moment and ask that you, uh, that you would be here with us. Um, God, if there's anything as we, as we open our hearts and minds, God, to spend time in your word, if, if there's anything in this message that's of me, um, of my doing or my prerogative or my purpose, God, I just pray that you would move it aside. Because God, we're not here today so that we can hear from me. We want to hear from you. And so, God, I ask that you would speak to us because we're listening. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So about a month ago, I was, uh, yeah, it was about a month ago, I was, I was back in Pennsylvania uh, visiting some family, but also for a specific purpose of attending a concert with my younger brother, Seth. Um, now, if you know me, you know that the band Coldplay is one of my favorite bands of all time. Yes, I know they're generic. Yes, I know they're mainstream. They have a lot of really good music, and their live show is amazing. Um, if, you, if you like them at all, I would highly encourage you to go see them. They're awesome. They have fireworks and lights, and everyone knows all the songs, and so they all sing along. You get this wristband when you go, and they are all synchronized with all the other wristbands in the audience, and so like when they're... You know, they have a song, one of their oldest songs called Yellow, and the guitar player starts strumming the first few chords, all the bands light up yellow, and so it's all part of the experience. And my brother and I have seen them twice in concert, both times in Philadelphia, both times during the summer, uh, outdoor at the Philadelphia Eagles Stadium. So there are like 70 to 80,000 people at this show. Um, But this time was actually even better than the first time, in part because we had floor seats. And what I mean by floor seats is that there were no seats on the field. You just stood in a big mass of people like probably me to David Bright from the stage. You didn't know you were going to be in the message today, David. Make sure you're paying attention. Um, but and I know to some of you that may not sound like a great way to spend an evening, you know, standing in a you know, big mosh of people for three hours. But it was great. We had, a, we had an awesome, awesome time. And there were a couple times during the show, as I said, you know, the, their live show is really what makes them one of my favorite bands. But there were a couple times during the show where 
because there's so many people, because you're down on the floor and all these people are filling the arena around you, I just kind of did one of these and just kind of turned and, and looked at all the people singing and all the lights and the spectacle and just, just kind of took it in, right? That's what happens when we go to an event like that, whether it's a major you know, sporting event or, or a concert or maybe even you've been you know, in, a, in a worship environment like that. You just kind of get lost in the moment of it. And if I felt that way when I went to see Coldplay in Philadelphia last month, I can't even begin to imagine what Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was feeling and what was going through his mind when he encountered the living God in the passage that we're going to read today. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read the first eight verses together, but before we do that, we're just going to try to get an idea of the context here. Um, and actually, in this passage, it's, it's great for us. We actually learn and are told really all that we need to know about the context in the first verse because Isaiah tells us that this event, this story occurred in the year that King Uzziah died. It's important that we understand this context because it helps put everything in perspective that we're going to read. You see, King Uzziah was overall a, a, a pretty good king. He was wise. He began his reign when he was 16 years old, and he was king of Israel for 52 years. Second Kings and Second Chronicles tell us of Uzziah's goodness and his desire to seek the Lord. We learn about his military battles. We learn about his building of Israel as a nation as his fame and, and strength are spread far and wide. But we also learn in Second Chronicles, unfortunately, how his story ends. King Isaiah, after acquiring all of this power, all of this, this strength, he got prideful. He got too comfortable, and he sinned against God by offering uh, burning incense on the altar in the temple. And you may ask yourself, and it's a, it's a fair question, why is that a bad thing? Why is that a sin? It was a sin because that right and that privilege, that act, was reserved for the priest. Isaiah was a king, but he wasn't a priest. And so the priest tried to stop him from entering that portion of the temple. He pushed his way through. He wound up sinning, and God struck him down with leprosy. And this once wise and, and kind and strong ruler, who was renowned far and wide, wound up spending the rest of his days in isolation. And that's the context that we need. That's what we need to keep in the back of our minds as we read this story. This king who was strong and powerful, but who ended his reign poorly, he's died. And Israel is distressed. Israel is struggling. They are aimless. And that's where we pick up the story today. So we're going to read the first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6. I'll be reading out of the ESV. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. We're focused on this story today, not just because it contains a theme verse of this series, but because it also I think gives us a roadmap. It gives us a template of how we do the work and will of God. In this passage, we're going to see four steps that Isaiah takes. We're going to see four things that he does. And I believe that we can take that story, we can take those steps, and we can follow them in our own right. And it'll put us on the path to doing the work of God. When we read this story, the first step we, we see Isaiah take, and the first thing that, that he does, we see in verse number one, where it says that he sees the Lord. But he doesn't just see the Lord. It, he sees him as the following verses tell us. He sees him seated on his throne, high and lifted up. He sees the seraphim, these winged creatures worshiping the Lord, shouting out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He feels the foundations shaking and he hears his voice. And in that moment, Isaiah understands something. He understands that he's in the presence of the Most High God. He feels his power. He feels his majesty. He sees him in his rightful place on his throne. See, in this passage, the first step that we see Isaiah take is the first step that we need to take if we're going to participate in the work and will of God, and that's that we have to recognize. We have to recognize God's glory. If we're ever going to do anything for God, if we're ever going to be anything for God, first of all, we have to recognize God. We have to recognize who He is for all that He is to the best of our ability. We need to recognize his glory, his power, his authority. And it's part of why I asked Becky to have us sing There is a King because it, it speaks about a king seated on a throne in his rightful place. We have to recognize that. We need to be able to be out in creation. We need to be in our worship services. We need to open our Bibles and understand that we're dealing with the Lord of the heavens and the earth the only one with dominion, the only one who reigns. We have to recognize God's glory and majesty. We have to pray like Moses did, that God would show us even a glimpse of his glory so that we can understand that he is God and we are not. And that really leads us to our end, Isaiah's second step. We see in this passage that after Isaiah has seen this breathtaking image of the Lord seated on his throne, after he's recognized God's glory, his majesty, his authority, he comes to a very quick realization. I want to remind us of what Isaiah says in the immediate aftermath of his encounter with the glory of God. He says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah's immediate reaction to the majesty of the king of kings is a swift realization that he is very, very far below the holiness and power that he just witnessed. Isaiah's immediate reaction, he, he stands in the presence of God and he knows empirically that he is very far 
from what he is encountering. He understands that he is a sinful man seeing a holy God and it gives him an accurate picture of who he really is as he sees more of who God is. And that's one of the things that happens when we see who God really is. We get a more accurate picture of ourselves. It is really, really hard to think of yourselves as being great and holy when you compare it to the image of the invisible God. When you see God high and lifted up, when you see more of His glory, it gives you an accurate, accurate understanding of yourself. But I want to point out that that's not the only realization that Isaiah has in the aftermath of this encounter. He not only knows that he is a man of unclean lips, that's what he says, but he also comes to an understanding that he dwells among a people of unclean lips. See, Isaiah not only realizes the sin in himself, he realizes the sin in the world around him. And I just want to kind of pause and and drill down there for a second. As we understand this second step in following the will and the work of God. After we recognize God's glory, we next must realize. We must realize our brokenness and the brokenness of the world. So first of all, we need to acknowledge that we as individuals are sinful. That we, left to our own devices as people, we are depraved, we are hopeless, we are unclean. We do not do the right things, and most of the time, we do not want to do the right things. We do not seek what is good, and we do not flee from what is evil. We're broken as individuals. And it may sound strange, but that's actually one of the most freeing and healthy realizations that a person can come to, that they're broken. And we have to come to that realization if we're ever going to be used for God. Because first of all, it helps us know that God does all the work in salvation. If I don't believe that I have any power to save myself, why in the world would I believe that I have any power to save other people? God does all the work in salvation. He holds all the cards and he has rescued me. And he's rescued you. And so therefore, by his grace and power, he can rescue other people. But we have to first come to the realization that our world needs rescuing. And I feel like, yeah, you know what? We're in church. This should be obvious to us. I think if if I were to ask you, hey, is our world broken? Is our world messed up? Everyone would nod their head, right? We don't really live like that sometimes. There are plenty of times where the church, and I'm not talking about this church, just the church in general, is either pretty passive or dismissive or downright supportive of what I think God would clearly call evil. That's a hard truth, but it's true. Church can be pretty passive and dismissive and sometimes even supportive of what God would plainly call sin. I mean, I've heard people talk, and, and not anybody that I would really listen to, but I've heard people talk about how evolved we are as people. Um, how, you know, we, we've, we've elevated to a higher level of thinking as humanity, right? We're, we, we know more than we did before, but we're not any different. We're the same sinful humanity we have been forever, and we're just as capable of evil as we have been forever. I think if there's a difference, especially in our country, and I, that's all I can speak for is our country and our country, I think actually we've probably lost some of the values that we had before. And if you want to know the reason for that, it's not that the people are getting worse. 
It's that, that the church maybe at another point in time actually used to stand against some of these things and now doesn't. Sometimes the church, church used to be a, a barrier, a, a blockade against the rising tide of evil in the world. Sometimes, sometimes they participated in it. Church today, we're, we're kind of soft, kind of dismissive and passive. We, just, we don't want to offend anybody, so we're just not going to say anything. And then we wonder why our schools and our world is headed in the direction that it is. It's because the church isn't standing up against what maybe they should be standing up against. And I get why we don't. I get why we find it so difficult to name our world as broken even when it is so clear that it is. You know, the church does have a history of committing sin as we're calling out sin. So we haven't always done it very well. We commit sin as we call out sin. And we don't want to be legalistic. We want to be people of truth and people of grace, and we should be. But you know what? Our God is a God of love and grace. It's what he leads with, right? But go read your Bible and tell me that God doesn't clearly call out what's good and what's evil. You know, Jesus is a savior of love and grace, right? But I don't know. I read the, I don't know what gospels, you know, everybody else reads, but the gospels that I read, Jesus calls out what's good and he calls out what's evil. Love and grace doesn't mean that you don't have to stand against what, God is, what is clearly against God's will. And meanwhile, we have segments of the church today, again, big C church, worldwide church, that are openly supporting things that are clearly a rebellion against the will of God. It makes no sense to me. I don't, I don't even know how we get to that point. But that's not the way that Isaiah operates Isaiah doesn't sit there and say, you know what, I am a man of unclean lips, but everybody else around me is fine. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The glory of God causes him to have a realization, first of his own brokenness, and then the brokenness in the world around him. And that's what we have to do. That's the realization we have to have if we are going to participate in the work and will of God. Now, we first have to see it in ourselves. We can't skip that stuff. That's, that's the problem sometimes. We like to point out the speck in other people's eye and we ignore the plank. Okay, so, so we have to see it in ourselves first. I have to come to the realization that I'm broken. I have to come to the realization that every single day I do say and think and intend things that are absolutely against the will of God, that are unequivocally sin and that break God's heart every single day. And so do you. And you have to come to that realization too. But once we come to that point, we also have to stop being passive or even openly for so much in our world that God would call evil. Because here's the fact of the matter. We have a different standard than God sometimes. What we think is evil and sin is maybe different than what God thinks is evil and sin. But here's the thing. It doesn't really matter what our standard is. It doesn't matter. Like our, our, our standard, our belief is irrelevant compared to what God has claimed is true because it's his world. He created good, and so therefore it's his standard that we have to live at. It's his standard of what's good and what's evil. So we need to stop being passive. We need to stop being permissive. We need to even stop being openly for what God would call evil. Because I want to say this clearly this morning. If you are supporting and celebrating what is clearly outside of God's expressed desire and design, 
you are not doing the will of God, you are opposing it. If you are supporting and celebrating what God, what is clearly outside of God's expressed desire and design, whatever it is that is outside of that, if you are supporting and celebrating that, you are not doing the will of God, you are opposing it. I think we have a lot of people who are choosing to support and celebrate and participate in things that are outside the will of God who believe they are doing the will of God. They're not. They're standing against him. It's a hard truth, but it's a true truth. After we recognize God's glory, we have to realize our own brokenness, our own sin, and the brokenness and sin of those around us. It's a necessary step, but it leads us to the next step. Because after he, re- he re- recognizes God's glory, after he realizes his sin, that he and the world are broken, Isaiah takes his third step and he receives In verses 6 and 7, it tells us that after Isaiah has made this confession of sin, one of the seraphim flies down to him, takes a burning coal from the altar, and touches his mouth, announcing that his guilt has been taken away. And what a beautiful scene it is that Isaiah, standing in the presence of God, overwhelmed by both the glory of the Lord and his own brokenness, can experience true grace and forgiveness. And the reality is, church, is that God wants all of us to have that experience. In fact, it's critical that we are affected by God's grace ourselves if we're ever going to be ambassadors for his grace to others. You cannot be a tour guide to somewhere that you have never been. So if you're not affected by God's grace, first and foremost, you will never be able to help people experience God's grace for themselves. And that's why we drill down into realizing Sin. Because after we recognize God's glory, after we realize the brokenness in ourselves and in the world, we too have to receive God's grace. That's the response to our confession. And it's only from the sobering reality of realizing our own brokenness that we can receive the fullness of God's grace for us. We will never truly know the depths to which God loves us, we will never truly know the lengths to which he's gone to rescue us if we never really believed we needed rescued in the first place. We have to understand our own sin and then we receive his grace. And we should want the same thing for those around us. We should want our friends, our families, our co-workers to understand that they are sinners, that they are people of unclean lips, that they are broken, not because we're mean, not because we're trying to put them down, but because we want them to experience the joy and the goodness of grace, to know that their sin is atoned for and wiped clean forever. I mean, think about the first time you, you knew that. Think about the first time, I don't know, if, I don't care if it was last week or 25 years ago, 50 years ago, whenever the first time you realized that your sin was forgiven. For me, I'll be honest, even though I grew up in church, the first time it really hit me in my gut was in college. I was a freshman in college. And it, it was like the most life-changing thing I'd ever experienced in my life. Don't we want our people we know to experience that? If we truly love people, don't we want them to have that same, same thing? But they don't get there unless they realize their own sin first. But once we do that, we receive God's grace. And from that, 
From that place of grace, we take our final step, which we see modeled for us by Isaiah. At the end of the passage, after all that's transpired within him, God asks a very simple question. He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. After he's recognized God's glory, after he's realized his and others' sinful state, after he's received God's grace, we finally see Isaiah be sent for God. And it, quite frankly, comes across a little anticlimactic. You know, this is the, the end of the story, and it's just, just like a simple question. Isaiah raises his hand. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. But I kind of point that out because it's, we make it far more complicated than it really is. It really is that simple. See, church, there isn't some training course that you have to go through. There's no degree that you have to get. There's no lengthy contract you have to sign. Um, you know, you don't have to have that crazy training montage with the dramatic music like Rocky has in all the movies where he's, you know, lifting logs in Siberia or whatever. You don't have, you don't have to do that. You just need to be willing and you just need to be obedient. When God asks you a question, you just need to say yes. When God opens a door, you just need to walk through it. That's how we take on God's call for us. And after we've, after we've recognized his glory, after we've realized our sin, after we've received his grace, that's all we have to do is respond. Respond to God's call. And I think it's important that we point out that it's, not, it's God's call for us, not our call for us. Notice what Isaiah doesn't do. Isaiah doesn't like walk up to God, tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm ready now. You know, let's talk about what you want me to do. Isaiah doesn't like go to God and say, hey, I've, I've strategized this and here's my strategic plan of how I'm going to serve you based on my, you know, my goals and preferences and strengths and all those things. No, he, it's, not, it's not Isaiah's call for Isaiah. It's God's call for Isaiah. And the fact of the matter is, is the same Lord has a has a role and a place and a purpose and a plan for each of us that he's calling us to. But we have to respond. God asks a question and Isaiah answers, yes, God opens a door and Isaiah walks through it. And I gotta be honest with you, if you read the rest of the book of Isaiah, that, that decision to walk through that door causes Isaiah a lot of pain and suffering. There's things that Isaiah does for God that I don't think any of us would be willing to do. Just saying. It's brutal. And at the same time, in a time and place in which God's people desperately needed to hear from him, God chose to use Isaiah to speak to his people for years. That's awesome. Not, not, because, I, not because Isaiah was special. Not because Isaiah had any, had any special plan, but because Isaiah just simply said yes. He just responded. And church, if we're going to participate in the work and the will of God, then we need to be willing and obedient just the same way that Isaiah was willing and obedient. God has a call for each of our lives. He wants to use us. He wants to to use us to further his purpose and his plan on earth. He wants us to do things for him that echo into eternity, but he's asking us the same question that he asked Isaiah. The question is, will you say yes? He's opening the door, but will you walk through it? You know, I've, as we kind of wind down today, I, I was uh, thinking earlier this week, I 
been trying to play a lot of golf. Um, you know, probably over the last year and a half, I've played a lot of golf, and I, I'm still terrible, but I'm less terrible than I used to be, um, which is probably the best way, I, most accurate way I know to describe it. Uh, but about two weeks ago, I actually played like my best round ever by far. And one of the reasons that I played so well is because really for one of the first times I was pretty consistent off the tee box. I, I drove the ball well and straight um, and into the fairway for a change, which was nice. I hadn't really been experienced a lot of that before, but it was great. And, um, you know, it set me up my other shots good and, and you know, I was able to, to shoot pretty low for me, not maybe for some of you, but for me. Um, and I, was, I had kind of a, a realization as I was playing. I, was, I think I was teeing off on, on hole nine. Um, I had this habit before because I was so terrible that I would always carry an extra golf ball in my pocket as I would go up to the tee box. Um, for those of you that have seen me play golf, remember hole one at the country club, Chad? Yeah, I do that. You know, I used to do that a lot. Um, I hit it about four feet into the, you know, woods. Um, so I always had an extra ball with me so I could just put the extra ball down and I have to walk back to the cart and re-hit. And I realized as I'm teeing off a whole nine, I'm playing pretty well. I'm like, you know, by doing that, I'm pretty much assuming failure. Like I'm preparing as if I have already messed up so that I don't have to do that again. I had this like epiphany. And so I stopped doing that. Whole nine, rest of the round, I just took one ball with me, T, my driver, and went up to the tee box. And I, I don't know that that's why I played so well. I mean, part of it is I'm just working at it and getting better, but I think there is something to a mindset shift that helps you be more successful. I stopped assuming failure, and I started assuming success. And I share that completely random story with you this morning because I think as a whole, sometimes we kind of assume failure in our work for God. Not because we don't think that God is capable, but that we're not sure that we're capable. I'm not the right person for this. I'm not qualified for this. I don't have the time for this. This isn't the right season of my life for this. What if this doesn't go well? What if this person doesn't want to be in a relationship with me anymore? What if this you know, relationship is ruined? What if this doesn't work out? Those are kind of normally the questions we run through our head. And I guess I'd just flip that and say, well, what if it does work out? What, what if God uses you to do something you never, ever in a million years thought would happen? What if, what if God does something through you that winds up changing the lives of maybe one or a hundred people? Maybe a thousand, I don't know. I have no idea what God has in store for you. I think we need to stop assuming failure and start expecting that if God calls us to something that he will make us successful by his own standard. We need to stop expecting ourselves to, to falter and start expecting that God is always going to do exactly what he wants when he wants. And if you're willing and obedient, he's going to use you to do it. You know, that mindset change on the golf course that I had, it didn't result in me playing perfectly. I still duff it off the tee every once in a while. But that's okay, because I'm not perfect. And church, God's not asking us to be perfect. He's got the perfection part of this covered. Okay, he's perfect. 
He just needs us to be willing and obedient. So when they answer, you know, when God asks a question, you don't need to be extra qualified. You just need to respond and say yes. When God opens a door, you just need to walk through it. God doesn't need us to be perfect. He just needs us to do those four things. To recognize His glory. To realize our brokenness and the world's brokenness. To receive His grace and respond to His call.